This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Now we're in Luke chapter 9. Our text today will be verses 18 through 22. So you're welcome to follow along as I read this out loud. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, well, thank you. Uh, Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's great to be with you. It's great to hear uh, the Lord's activity moving in our hearts and our church family like that of Adam. Um, So proud, proud of you and what God's doing in your heart, excited for what the Lord has for you ahead, and you're going to make a much better husband now, that your eyes are seeing uh, Jesus for who he really is. It's exciting. Um, One of the most encouraging things that uh, he has communicated to me over the last three weeks is a text he sent me three weeks ago on a Sunday night. Um, We were texting uh, scripture references uh, back and forth. And uh, he said, it's amazing how all this has just been right here waiting for me to read. Uh, He was reading it before, but much like Michael referenced last week um, during our community spotlight time, uh, it was just words on a page. But now they actually are able to be understood and seen and felt and experienced. And so Adam's experiencing that. And I, I too, have experienced that. I preached personally for 14 years um, without having the words really make a difference to my heart. Um, But over the last 10 years, it's been amazing the difference between the first 14 years of preaching versus the last 10. Uh, It's been, it's it's incredibly different when the preacher is a Christian. Um, It it makes all the difference in the world. Um, Man. Uh, So anyway, um, if you haven't already done so, I ask that you grab a Bible and turn to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 9. Uh, this is our, our 40th week now in our study. So if you're new with us, we're, we've committed ourselves to Luke. And we're going to be working through his narrative, wanting to see Jesus for who he really is. So together, my hope is that we will challenge our assumptions about Jesus, that we're going to dig to discover who the real Jesus is from the pages of Scripture, allowing Scripture to inform our view of who Jesus is, because Jesus is the most significant and important person to ever live. And it's only faith in the real Jesus, not a a phony Jesus, a manufactured Jesus, a misunderstood Jesus. But friend, it's only faith in the real Jesus that's going to grant you hope of heaven. It's going to grant you that home that Adam is talking about, that security that Adam is talking about, and and provides you joy in this life. And so, my friends, if you ever, ever hear anything other than this coming from this stage, leave and leave quickly, 
Okay? Tommy, will you be the first one to leave if you hear something other than Okay. So we can follow Tommy if something other than that ever gets preached here. I just don't want that to happen. Uh, we just don't need anything else. We need Jesus and only this finished work of Jesus to be our hope because everything else will disappoint. So now over the last five weeks, I want to catch us up just in case you're new as well as if you're like me, we often get distracted and we need to refocus. So I want to kind of give us some established context to where we're going to be jumping from and into uh, in Luke 9. So here's what's been going on in the latter part of 8 and throughout chapter 9 so far. So Jesus, he proves his power over a storm. Okay, He frees a man uh, uh, who, who was tormented by demons. Um, he cures a woman who had a hemorrhaging uh, health problem for 12 years. He brings a, a little 12-year-old girl back from sickness and death back to life. So the extent of his power and the scope of his authority seems to have no limits and no, no bound, okay? No bounds at all. And his disciples are right here through all of this learning that Jesus is powerful, learning that Jesus has a certain unique authority about himself that no one else does. They're learning that nothing is too difficult for Jesus. Well, now Jesus uses this opportunity after showing his disciples these things. He pulls them in right when this is all fresh, okay? He pulls them in, and, and he, he sends them out on a mission to preach the gospel of the kingdom and then to go heal uh, the sick, those who need to be cured and helped physically. Well, as they do this, people are changed. There's preaching everywhere. There's healings everywhere. People are being cured left and right. And so rumors begin to rise and increase in the Middle East. Rumors are like John the Baptist is back from the dead, who had been, who had been beheaded right just a few months earlier. Uh, rumors are that the mighty Elijah from back in the Old Testament, one of the old mighty prophets, is back from the grave. Or maybe a Jeremiah or one of the other prophets are back and revisiting um, the, the uh, Jerusalem area. So there's mayhem, there's chaos, there's all sorts of disturbance. And Rome, be reminded here, Rome is occupying Jerusalem during all this time. And Rome likes to be calculated. They like, they like to be quick, calculated, controlled, poised. And all this disturbance that's happening uh, causes concern. All, right? um, all this attention going towards this uh, religious revolutionary uh, of Jesus and his disciples performing all these miracles and preaching in all these different places, it's, it's causing concern, and there's jealousy that sets in. There's envy. There's tension that's created between the political powers of Rome, all right, overseeing, occupying Jerusalem, and then also the rabbis and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Sadducees, all the religious rulers over the Jews. And then also you've got Jesus with his men and his women who are performing these magnificent miracles and teaching about the kingdom. So this begins brewing, okay? Well, Jesus, he calls his men back to himself, his 12 disciples, and he gets caught up in kind of what's been going on. So tell me how all this has been going. I hear all these rumors. How have things been as you, as you have been sent out to preach, teach, cure, and heal? They try to get some one-on-one -on -one time, 12-on-one -on time to kind of process all this. The crowd gets word of it. They don't let Jesus go off by himself with his disciples. They pursue Jesus, right? And Jesus welcomes them all. And so instead of having a break, he welcomes 
at least 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and he heals them, teaches them, encourages them, grins with them, laughs with them. Just such a compassionate, kind Savior God that Jesus is. Well, it's during this time they grow hungry. It gets late into the evening, and they only have basically a snack. They've got a meal for maybe one person, two fish, five loaves. There's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So about Bridgestone Arena, about 20,000 people perhaps are there following Jesus, and it's growing late in the evening. They're hungry. He takes essentially some barbecued nachos from Nissan Stadium, and he feeds Bridgestone Arena, all right, with that, okay? And not only this, they had leftovers. So they had a lot more at the end than what they even had at the beginning. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. He does this. So with this in mind, this is now where we're in our text. So we've been called up. Now let's get busy here in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. But before we do, something I I failed to mention. This is the first time I've mentioned it. Um, There's a ball game going on, right? Titans are playing the Texans. Deshaun Watson, my boy from Clemson. um, And Mariota, my Titans, kind of torn. But what's going to happen is there's going to be a uh, a military aircraft, most likely, fly over the top of our building, and it's going to startle you, okay? It's going to startle me. And if it's right when I'm talking about God's judgment, that's just, <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with that. But just, that's what that is. So when that happens, I'm just trying to address it now to kind of reduce the size of the elephant in the room, uh, just so that we'll all not run for the exits or, you know, be too concerned. That's what it is. Okay, all right. Now, You're welcome. Now we can kind of chill as we enter the text here. Okay, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So somehow Jesus and the twelve finally get some downtime. Evening set in, people went home to rest. They had full stomachs, had sack lunches taken back with them. And Jesus is there with his 12 disciples. And Jesus prays. He's there, and the 12 are with him, and he's praying. But he's praying alone. So the other disciples were present, but they just simply weren't involved in his prayer. He wasn't, in other words, he wasn't loud. He was just praying, perhaps even to himself. He wasn't trying to be vocal to where they could hear or participate or have a communal time of prayer. He was praying alone. Now, doesn't it strike you that the one who was with God, of God, from the beginning of all things, that he still prays? Doesn't that strike you that he's praying, that he still talks to God, that he talks to the Father? He talks to him. This implies a number of things, but this implies that there's something simply enjoyable about prayer. There's something that's necessary about conversations with God. There's something enjoyable about praying. Well, during this time of prayer, Jesus, he looks up at his 12 strategic followers. He stares into their eyes and he looks into their hearts. And he asks his 12 disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Now here, let's remember back to my sort of summary of where we are in the text. Remember, Herod, you can look in your, if you're following along in your Bible in verses 7 and 8, you can see that Herod was privy to these rumors that were circulating around the Middle East. 
John the Baptist is back. No, Elijah's back. No, the ancient prophets are here, like Jeremiah, coming back from back in the day. It's interesting that these rumors were so prevalent and so popular that even the disciples had a grasp as the top three possibilities of who Jesus is and what he is up to. So Jesus says, what's been the word on the streets about me? He says this in verse 19. Or they, they reply back, John the Baptist is what they say. But there's others who say Elijah. There's others that it's one of the prophets of old that's come back from the dead that's risen. Now, that's interesting that it's the exact same response as what Herod had been hearing. So this is, a, this is prevalent. This is the word on the street. The top three possibilities is he's John the Baptist, Elijah, or just another prophet back. Now, Jesus then says in verse 20, okay, that's all fair and good. Who do you, look in verse 20, but who do you say that I am? What about you? And then Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Messiah, synonymous with Christ, the Messiah of God. The anointed one of God. The sent one of God. The long-awaited one. The promised one. The Messiah, the Christ. Now, the way that Luke gives us this uh, presents Jesus as the very clear authority in this moment here with these disciples. He's posturing himself as the authority, asking them who they say Jesus is. Now, for those who've been following along with us now for 40 weeks, or the majority of these 40 weeks, this is now the pinnacle of the very first part of, of Luke's gospel. So we've been building up now to this point, to this question. Who do you say that I am? Here Jesus asked this point-blank question to his disciples. What do you believe of me? Who do you believe me to be? What do you think of me? Who do you say that I am? Friend, this is the most important question given to us. This is it. This is the most significant question to ever consider. These disciples were asked this most important question. This is the most critical question that you could ever be asked. It's right here. Who is Jesus? Well, Peter says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah of God. And Peter makes this definitive statement that Jesus has been leading him towards, right? It's why he's been doing these things and teaching these ways and, 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 and going back to the Beatitudes and talking about his kingdom and, and the, the, uh, the warnings and the woes and the blessings and, and, and all that he's been doing with these miracles and manifestations of his power and authority. It's all culminating to this point, proving that he's the Messiah, that he's the anointed one, the promised one, the Son of God. Friends, this is true and this is the gospel of the Holy Scriptures given to us by God for our good. The gospel is that Jesus is God, that he came to us in human flesh, that he stepped into our time and history, that he was sent to rescue us, that Jesus was sent in order to be the needed shelter and protector between the wrath of God and sinful humanity. 
Peter understood what scholars and students and professional religious leaders, they didn't know. They totally missed it. They couldn't see it. They failed to understand it. In looking at Jesus, they missed Jesus. Just as Adam is talking about when he was looking at the scriptures, didn't see the scriptures. Just like Michael was talking about, just looking at the scriptures, just words on a page. Just like my story, my testimony, just preaching sermons but never letting it captivate my heart and preaching it to myself. You see, Peter had this vision. He had this understanding of who Jesus was. You see, friend, there is a storm coming to us that's unlike no other. There's, there's a storm coming that can't be predicted except to say that it's certainly on its way. Friend, there's a 100% chance of the full wrath of God coming to us to rain down on all of sinful mankind. You can't predict it, but it's certain. You can't run from it, but there's no escaping it. There's only one adequate shelter from this coming judgment of God upon sin and sinful humanity. And you and I were sinners. There's something lacking in us. It's holiness and it's righteousness. You and I are sinners and we're unrighteous before God. We're not good enough. There is something lacking and there's nothing we can do to help it. And without holiness and righteousness, no one will see God. No one will be in fellowship and friendship reconciled with God. No one. There's no exception. It takes perfection. It takes righteousness. It takes absolute, absolute holiness. So we're in trouble. But there's one shelter from this wrathful storm of God's judgment. There's one rock that we can run to for protection. There's one refuge that you and I have that we can place our trust in to protect us. And it's on this very statement that Peter makes. Jesus is this rock, this shelter, this refuge. He's the one that is the Messiah of God. Who is Jesus? Peter says Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the necessary and needed mediator. He is the long-awaited one sent to fulfill all of God's promises. It's Jesus. Now, following this very powerful moment with Jesus and his disciples, I mean, imagine being one of the disciples and watching this happen. Who do they say that I am? Well, this, this, and this. But who do you say? It's like, whoa. And Peter answers up. You're like, Phew. that's the right answer. Okay, got me out of trouble. I didn't really know what to say. And Peter answers it. Following this moment, Jesus says this in 21. He strictly charged and commanded them. It's very firm. And a lot of authority is implied here, right? When you charge someone, command someone, authority is implied. So he's, again, in this authority position. He, authoritative position. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to nobody. To no one. Keep this quiet. Now, isn't that surprising? It's recorded this way in, in all three of the accounts of this in the Gospels that we have. It's surprising, this response, um, to, to tell his disciples to keep his identity a secret. I believe this is happening for two reasons. One, he's, he's protecting the very specific timeline and plan that God had for exactly how his mission would unfold through Jesus and his work. But it's also Jesus protecting and his disciples from, from, from going and speaking of this before they've been trained and discipled for the next couple years as they make their way towards uh, the fulfillment of all that Jesus would accomplish. So there was something about the disciples that they 
falsely understood something about Jesus. They incompletely understood something about Jesus, about what it meant to be a disciple or, or the full meaning of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. So maybe he got the right answer, but he didn't really get all the implications and how that was going to play out because he still had this political, Peter and the disciples still were thinking more of an earthly political mindset of Jesus is now here, the Messiah has come, Rome, see ya, Israel, Jerusalem, finally here, Abraham's promise fulfilled, our land back, our freedom has now come, let's go, give it to him, Jesus, and Jesus is like, no, see, it's not going to happen like that, you guys don't understand it, it's, it's not here and now, it's later, and it's better, but there's, there's a process to this, and those you hate are actually going to be part of the family too. So we've got a lot we've got to work through before all this can happen. So don't tell anybody right now about what you just said. We've got some work to do. Okay? That's the heart of Jesus here in protecting his disciples from moving on. But now, this here, this, this marks the beginning of a, a decisive new phase of the mission of Jesus Christ. Things begin to change. The mission the mission's geographical focus was to be Jerusalem. Okay? The focus of this mission is now dominated by the cross. And Jesus is poised. Who do men say that I am? John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am? Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. Don't tell anybody this for right now. Jesus is poised. His life is pointing in one single, single direction. He sees the finish line already in full view. His face is set like flint. He's committed. Nothing's going to deter Jesus. Nothing's going to lead him away. Jesus is solid as steel. He sees before him the cross. The cross. He stepped over the line. The decision for Jesus has long been made. He's not going to hesitate. He's not going to slow down, pump the brakes, let up, or back away. The Father's plan is unfolding. The Father's plan is sovereignly now set in motion. And Jesus isn't looking for this earthly stardom, right? This earthly kingdom. He's not looking for the fleeting fame, religious popularity, or, or uh, political conquest, or temporal comfort. He's disinterested in all of this. This is not his focus. He lives totally and completely in submission to the Father and to the Father's plan. Jesus perfectly lives by faith. It's who he is. It's how he lives. It's how he operates. He powerfully and strategically sets his pace and his gait towards marching on to the cross. Every reaction, every action, every statement, everything that he says, everything that he does is set towards the cross. This road to the cross is narrow. This way of the cross is rough and it's lonely. He's going to have very few companions and friends who are going to stick with him as he makes his way to the cross. But nonetheless, his mission is crystal clear. He has come to be sin for sinful mankind. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lots of pronouns. Let's break it down this way. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in Christ, you and I might become good enough. Remember the void, what's missing, the holiness, righteous requirement that's there that we're disqualified from experiencing because we're, we're sinners, right? Jesus comes to give us his righteousness. He's come to make us the righteousness of God, to make us good enough now for heaven. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. He was perfect and without sin. But he sent him so that in Christ, you and I might become good enough and now fit for heaven, righteous and holy before God. So to this being the end, this being the goal of his mission, he must continue now in his life of perfection. If he sins, he disqualifies himself as the legal representative on our behalf. He must suffer for you. He must suffer for me. He must become sin for us on our behalf. He must die on the cross as our needed and necessary substitute. Jesus must experience death. He must endure death personally as our sacrificial lamb offering before God for our atonement. He must not only endure death and experience death, he has to kill death and slaughter it just as he was slaughtered for us in his death. That through this, God will give us life. Friends, nothing would deter Jesus. Nothing would pull him away, lure him away, change his mind, or delay him. He's not going to flinch in the face of suffering. He's not going to cower down and back away at the thought of becoming a sacrifice. He's not going to hesitate on this mission. In fact, he considers it, as Hebrews tells us, a joy. He considers this mission a joy. There's going to be zero negotiating with the enemy. He is, in fact, the Messiah of God that's been sent into this world. He knows it, and he's all about it. He's on a mission to save mankind. He's on a mission to save you. This is what he was doing. But here's how he puts it, and it's in our text in verse 22. Here's how Jesus would word it. The Son of Man, speaking of himself, must, must, must. He submits to the Father's plan. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He must be killed. And he must, on the third day, be raised. Must. The elders, the chief priests, the scribes. Friends, these are the three groups that made up what was called the Sanhedrin. Okay? The Sanhedrin was basically the supreme court of the Jews. So what Jesus is prophesying is actually what does take place, as we'll learn in our study. But, but this was a complete and total official legal rejection of the Messiah, of Jesus, by Israel's highest court, completely rejecting him. But more than this, here is Jesus unpacking step by step the Father's plan. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected legally. So I'm going to have, there's going to be a council, okay? There's, there's going to be a judgment that I'm going to be a part of. I'm going to stand before the legal representatives, and I'm going to have this moment, and then I'm going to be guilty. I'm going to be killed, but on the third day, I'm going to beat death. I'm going to come back to this life. So he's unpacking this Father's plan in order for Jesus to make us who are orphans his adopted brothers and sisters, God's 
children. He's going to do this in order for God to form and create the promised kingdom that will happen through Jesus as he will reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So as Jesus begins to shift his attention now directly towards the cross on Golgotha at Calvary there in Jerusalem, he now explicitly warns his disciples as to what's going to happen so that they won't get caught off guard. He's preparing them, his followers, not for this triumphant uh, political Messiah who's going to have this power uh, experienced and, and visualized and participate in this here, now, in this lifetime. He's preparing these followers for how this mission is going to be completed, not by political conquest, but through his suffering and through his death. Now think about this. Here you are. You're a disciple. You, you've surrendered your career to follow this rabbi, this teacher, I mean, he is the Messiah. Everything he does, it echoes in the Old Testament. Everything he does. It's like, well, that's just like what we were hoping for in the Messiah. And that's exactly what we were hoping for in the Messiah. It's like, we're, everybody else was following these false ones. Man, we're, we've stumbled upon the real one. And we're here. We're giving away everything. We're selling everything. Many of these men, if not all of them, have sacrificed even friends and family relationships in order to follow even more closely this, this radical rabbi. And Jesus tells them that he's going to endure sufferings and beatings and die and then beat death. But you're a diehard disciple. You're, you're, you're following. You can't even consider those last few words, but on the third day be raised. So I believe you can see why it would, be, uh, it would demand, it would require a radical reorientation here in their thinking, right? They had to gain an entirely new paradigm uh, for what the Messiah was to do and how he was to do it. The prophecies made about him, how he would make all things new, how he would bring about this new and, and better kingdom. And so what Jesus does is he presses in even more. And so next week, if you want to glance down to verse 23, you'll get a taste of it. But beginning next week... Jesus is going to begin working to deconstruct his disciples' paradigm and reconstruct his disciples' paradigms around what it means to be a disciple and what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Not the political revolutionary that they're expecting, but the eternal king of kings. It's going to take some work. So Jesus is saying, hey, we've got some more to do, and here we're going to start it. And he begins. We're going to be jumping into that next week. But during all this, during all this time, it's obvious, as we've unpacked some already this morning and over the last few weeks, there's been many different opinions about Jesus. And here, Peter, he gets the answer right at some level. Most people were probably smarter than Peter. He was just a fisherman. It wasn't a, a glorified trade. Most people were more intelligent and more educated than Peter. But Peter knew. Peter knew. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? It made little difference what others thought about Jesus. Jesus wanted to specifically hear what the disciples thought about them. Who do men say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Who do you say? You're the Messiah of God. You're the Christ of God. What about you? What about you? Who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? It makes no difference what your parents think. It makes no difference, for you anyways, 
what your grandparents think, what your parents think, what your roommate thinks, your best friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your own children, makes no difference. What do you think about Jesus? My sweet friends, you must know that you can sit in here and listen to Je about Jesus and hear the gospel all day long, every single Sunday. You can recite creeds and covenants, confessions and statements, but friend, you must believe Jesus to be a Christian. You must believe Him. You must hope in Him. You must trust Him. Friend, He's the only shelter from the coming storm of God's righteous and just judgment that's on its way. It's only Jesus Christ. It's only the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. But who do you say that He is? Jesus consistently spoke of Himself as the fulfillment of the law, not just a teacher. He spoke as one who all of humanity would one day stand before. He spoke as one who knew the hearts and the motives and the intentions of men and women alike. He spoke not as a way to God or a way to the truth or a way to heaven, but he spoke as the way to God, the way to heaven, the truth. He spoke as one who knew the future. He spoke, he, he spoke with such clarity and confidence. He was always so, so powerful in how he handled himself, so precise in his judgments and his reactions and actions. He spoke the word of God as if he wrote it, which he did. He said that you must hear and that you must be obedient to what he says in order to have life. The Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the religious, they talked about the law. Here it comes. You ready? <laughs> but Jesus says that he came to complete the law and to fulfill the law. So while others, the others respected him and thought highly of him, they still missed Jesus. They engaged with him at a certain level, but they missed Jesus and what he was about. You see, Jesus, he was God. He is God. He claimed to be God, the author of mankind. But do you see him as such? Do you believe this to be true about Jesus? Friend, do you worship Jesus? Do you worship Him? Within your heart, does your heart bow down to Him? Or is He a means to your end? Do you adore Jesus? Do you adore him? Do you adore him? Do you cherish him? Do you submit to him as God, as Lord? Do you worship him? Do you come to the pages of scripture and say, I'm ignorant, I'm foolish, I'm so wayward and drifting and careless and subjective. Word of God, Jesus Christ, I need you to speak to my life. I need direction, I need counsel. I'm so foolish. I'm such a moron. I'm such an idiot. I need you to be truth. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to think. And place it over us as this authoritative word then informs us. Is this how you view Jesus? That, that he can actually speak into something that you feel and it actually change what you do regardless of your feelings because what he says is truth. Or do we pull it down here where we're the one who's the authority? We pick and choose what to look at. We pick and choose what to read. We pick and choose how we want it to be worded. We pick and choose what we're going to obey. 
then we ourselves in that moment are no longer worshiping Jesus and the God of the Bible. We're worshiping ourselves. And we're going to leverage a Christian book, a tool, a word to do it. That's not cherishing Jesus. That's not adoring Jesus. That's not worshiping Jesus. Christians worship Jesus. Have you ever been disappointed? Yeah, we're human, right? We've been disappointed. If you've been disappointed, you understand what it's like to set your hope on something. You've set your hope on something and, and it doesn't happen. You're disappointed. So at some level, there was a cherishing of a, of a possibility, a cherishing of something new and different and better. So you understand what it's like to be frustrated. You understand what it's like to be disappointed. Therefore, you know what it's like to set your heart on something, to worship something, to cherish something, to adore something at a certain level. So we can do this with how we're perceived on social media, with how we're liked or unliked, or whether people comment or not, or whether we get the promotion or not. We can feel, we can, we can place hope on all these things. But when it comes to Jesus, like we don't understand how, how he, he works and how we're to cherish and adore and worship him. We've got categories for these things in other aspects of our lives, but we're spiritually dead, incapable of setting our affections on him. I believe for many in the church it's because we try to do it without becoming a Christian. We try to do it as a means to an end. We try to do it all based off of a simple feeling and not by the Word of God speaking to us, the, the Holy Spirit of God changing us, transforming us like Adam, like Michael, like me, like what so many in this room have experienced. Where once you become a Christian, it, is, it becomes more simple. It's not easy, but it becomes more simple to set your affections on Jesus, to latch your heart onto Christ. But is this true for you? Do you believe him in this way? Do you view him in this way? Do you adore him and cherish him and worship him? You see, friends, Jesus' claims, they eliminate. If you listen to Jesus and receive his words, it eliminates the popular strategy of many who want to view Jesus as just a good guy or, or, or just a prophet or a wise teacher who said some profound things. So often that's the conclusion that's passed off as the only one acceptable to scholars as the result of the intellectual exercise of whether Jesus is who he says he is. But here's the trouble. Many people nod their heads in agreement and they never see how irrational this reasoning is of being able to view Jesus as a good guy, but not submit to him, adore him, and cherish him. To see him as a teacher, a good teacher, but not worship him and cherish him and adore him. They don't see the, 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 the failed logic and just how irrational this is. And C.S. Lewis nails it. He, he says this, and he was an agnostic once before he became a Christian. He was a professor at Cambridge University. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is a son of God or else a madman or something worse. He continues, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
Friend, what do you believe to be true about Jesus? Jesus Christ claimed to be God. He did not leave any other option open for us. He left zero other possibilities. It's either true or false. So friend, I would encourage you to give this some serious consideration. Now quickly, in our time remaining, I want us to work through this. Let's suppose first that his claims were false. Let's say that Jesus was not Christ, was not the Messiah, was not God come to save man. Let's say that he was just a a normal guy, okay? That he wasn't the God man. He was mere man. Let's suppose that his claims were false. Now, if it's false, then we've got two options here before us, all right? So if it's false, we've got two. Either he knew it was false or he didn't know it was false. If he knew it was false, then he's a liar. He's an intentional liar. If Jesus knew that he wasn't God, then he was lying and deliberately tricking everybody who followed him. If he couldn't back up his claims and he knew it, then he was the worst person to ever live. Unspeakably, unspeakably evil. Perhaps so evil he would make Hitler look like Mother Teresa. And also, just think about this, he would be a, he'd be a fool because his claims of being God is what led to his crucifixion. So many will say that he was a great moral teacher or a significant prophet, but I encourage you to be realistic with these words and this understanding. How could a great moral teacher knowingly mislead people at the most important point of his teaching, that being his identity? You'd have to conclude logically that he was a deliberate liar if you go on this track. But let's say he didn't know that he was false, but he still taught that he was the Messiah. Well, then he would be crazy. He'd just be crazy. He'd be a lunatic. If Jesus didn't know that he was deceiving his own followers, then he was out of his mind. And considering his own teachings, considering the evidence of him being an upright person from even the unbelieving historians of his era, being crazy is a tough option to hold, to be honest with you. I've studied a little bit about first century history, and I can't find any evidence of anyone ever thinking that Jesus was a lunatic and out of his mind. Nobody. So then, that's this false, but if true, then Jesus is Lord. He is who he says he is. He is the Messiah, the Christ of God. He actually came as God into time and space on earth in the flesh. I can't personally, through my study nor my core belief, accept that Jesus is a liar or that he's a lunatic. The only other alternative is that he is Christ, the Son of God, just as Peter declared. So the issue with, of these three alternatives isn't really which is possible, because at some level, okay, any, anything is possible. You can make anything hypothetical, but which one here is more probable? Friend, you must decide who Jesus Christ is. And I encourage you not to let this be a casual intellectual exercise, right? Don't, don't just be unintentional here in your effort. Don't take this haphazardly. How are you approaching him today? Is it casually? Is it indifferent? Is it passive? Or are you aggressive to see and know? It is incredibly important for you to see and know and study. If you're going to be an atheist, be a good one. If you're going to be a skeptic, be a good one. Study all of it. Do reasoning. Do hard work. Don't just tap out and take a sissy way out of it. Dig deep. Dig roots and study to land where you land. But if you study Jesus at any time, you'll realize that you can't merely put him on a shelf as a great teacher. That's ridiculous. You can't just say he was a good prophet. That's ridiculous. Those are not valid options. You have to consider this and say he's a liar or he's crazy or he's God. Jesus is God. 
Peter says it, that he's God. And I'm here experiencing it, knowing it, believing it, being changed by this reality that he's God. And building your life on the finished work of Jesus Christ is building your life on a foundation that will not disappoint you. It will give your heart a home in this life, as Adam was referencing earlier, and it will give you a home in eternity with him forever and ever in paradise. He's come to rescue you from the coming storm. He's come to offer you true and everlasting hope in God. He's come to establish you on the rock of Jesus Christ himself. Well, Christianity, man, that's good for you. I'm glad that you're involved in something like that, but I'm just not the religious type. I'm just not into that stuff. In closing, I want you to consider this. Let's say you and I are taking a trip to San Francisco, and we begin walking across the Golden Gate Bridge, and I make my way off to the, to the outer railing, and I, I jump up, and you're like, Jeremy, what are you doing? You're going to die. You're like, you're an idiot. Stop. I'm like, well, I'm not really the gravity sort of person. I don't really, I mean, I'm not the gravity type. You see, the problem with my problem in this illustration is that gravity is not a lifestyle choice. Gravity is reality. You see, friend, you need Jesus. You need to run to Jesus. There's a storm of God's judgment that's coming upon sin, and God is a consuming fire, and this is reality. Whether you believe it or not makes no difference to the reality of this being truth. But this will make all the difference in eternity for you. All the difference. So you have to decide. And what you have before you is really to follow Jesus in obedience and faith, submitting to him as king over your life, and that's a decision. Or you're going to reject Jesus and continue on your way. To be passive, it's not a choice. That is to decide to walk away and choose your own way, and that's your decision. But my friends, I encourage you to lean in And decide for yourself this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? I encourage you to ask the Spirit of God to move in your heart today. Ask Him to reveal these truths to your soul, to to your heart today and every day. My friends in the room who who know, you know down deep that you're just not a Christian. You're not a Christian yet. And I love to say not Christian yet because I was surprised when I became a Christian. I thought I was one, right? And, and Adam and, and Michael and so many of us, like, we've been surprised by grace. We've been surprised by how God has saved us and changed us. And I just, I'm believing and hoping that you will become a Christian and that you will, you will be satisfied, that you'll have that longing within your heart to truly know that, that you do matter and you find it in the magnificent providence of God worked out in your salvation where you hear that you're cherished, you're beloved, you're adored, you're adopted <laughs> to the point where Jesus gave himself in order to gain you back into his family, that you do matter, that you do have a purpose, and that your identity is secure. And it's not set on what you do, but it's not set on what another has done, that being Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you to call out to Jesus for faith, to call out for Jesus for belief, and my friend, he will give it to you. That, that, that you would ask him to allow your heart to rest in his finished work. Ask God to give you your soul peace and rest in these things. For eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to know and understand, and a heart to experience him and to know him the way you were intended to before sin messed everything up. But friend, judgment day is coming. It is quickly approaching. A day of reckoning is approaching and you're not prepared. You're not prepared. If you're not a Christian, you're not ready. 
You're simply not ready, and I'm caring for you right now. This is love. This is concern. This, this comes from a deep place of longing for you to be ready and prepared. But I've got to tell you, you cannot endure the coming judgment that's forecasted. You can't. There's only one refuge. There's only one rock, and that's Jesus. And I pray that you believe him. I pray that you follow him today and begin seeking him in his word and in the Christian community that you believe him. And for the Christians in the room, man, you're with me. You and I, we've both, we've publicly declared Jesus to be the Messiah. We've publicly declared that he's the Son of God. We've publicly embraced this lifestyle of worship, following the risen King, and will be with him forever. Yet so often, if you're honest with me, I'll be honest with you, we pretend that we are our Savior. We pretend that, that our jobs, our, our money, our popularity, how we're perceived and received, that these are our Saviors, functional Saviors. But I want you to be reminded this morning that Jesus is God. You're not. You're not. And for some, that's all it takes. It's just being told that you're like, oh yeah, you're right. Wow. But trust your way to the Lord this morning. Return to your refuge. Don't run to your performance. That's a damning idol. That'll trick you every time. Don't run to getting even. Getting even will disappoint you. The moment you feel like you have it, you realize it's not what you are wanting. There's something deeper. It's not gaining in the mere uh, riches of this world. Friend, embrace this reality this morning. Renew this embracing of the reality of Jesus Christ being the Messiah sent to save you. Christian, I'm talking to you. Embrace this. Realign your lives on this reality of the gospel today. Now, I want, to, I want us to do this together through communion. I want us to think on this. This is realigning ourselves around the gospel. I want us to do it together. It's, it's embracing this reality now. Because we've drifted this week, and now we have a chance to call ourselves back. Okay? To remind ourselves of what is true. We've been tricked. So many of us, all of us, have been tricked in so many ways this week. Let's remind ourselves of the truth, of where our hope is, where our salvation comes from. So we're going to take some bread that Jesus, the night of his arrest that he was predicting, he got arrested and beaten. The night of his arrest, he met with his disciples in the upper room, and he shared a meal with them, and he presented the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, just like something similar to this. It's why we call it a sacrament. It's because it was Jesus' idea. It's not the church's idea. It's not our idea. It's like Jesus made this happen. And that's why we do it. Because he said to do it. So we do it. But he said, this bread that you're going to take, this is symbolic of my life that I've lived for you as your representative. This red liquid, the juice, the wine, is symbolic of my death. All this was necessary for you to be restored back into relationship with God. This is my mission. This is what I'm about. I'm Christ, and here's how I am the Messiah. I'm fulfilling it this way. So that's what we have this morning. Now I want to pray for us as we come and take and remember and celebrate the finished work of Jesus as our hope. Let me pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time we've been able to share here in this text. Lord, I pray that we all consider what it means for you to be God and for us to submit our ways to you, to your lordship, to you being king and ruler 
over all things, but also over my heart. Not just what people say, not just what Scripture says, but what my heart says to be true about you. Lord, help me in this way. Help me believe you functionally, practically in my marriage as a parent, as a neighbor, as a, as a coach, as an encourager. Lord, as a, I, I need to be reminded of, of what this now means, that you are my Savior. We need this. We need, to, we need to realign ourselves this morning around what you've accomplished for us. And so I ask that you do this through this time that we share together. Lord, add your special blessing to this time of communion, I pray, as we remember and refocus this morning. In Christ's name, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.